Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. wonderful. Now, as we were singing, I couldn't help but think that the gospel was marvelous and wonderful to an almost nine-year-old, an eight-year-old boy in San Diego, California, 54 years ago. Do the math. 1961, I walked forward like a lot of our children do, and I took the pastor's hand and I ask Jesus into my heart, I want to be baptized. Oh, the marvelous grace of God that saves little eight-year-old boys. I didn't know how wonderful it was. I think my next big thought was, can the Dodgers beat the Giants? I'm sure that's, that's my next big thought. Because I grew up in a Christian home and I was in the church and, and this is what you're supposed to do. And so I'd ask Jesus in my heart, I got baptized and, and, and now we just went on with life. I mean, that's the way it was. Until I was a 13-year-old junior high school boy. Yes, I used to be one. <laughs> at a Bible camp in Karatsu, Japan. The reality of God struck me. Now, folks, even as a 13-year-old, I couldn't quite explain it. Can't explain it now. But it just was impressed upon my heart in an almost audible voice. If you don't belong to him now, you never will. And at that moment, the grace of God became even more real to me. I wouldn't have explained it to you in that way. But I can tell you now that the grace of God took the faith of a nine-year-old and turned it into the faith of a junior high school boy. I can't tell you how twisted and, and funny-looking the theology of, an, of a 13-year-old of a is. But I can tell you this, it's real, and it's wonderful, and it's marvelous. And then by the time I got to college, I felt like God was lucky to have me. I mean, God had done a pretty good deal to get me on his side. I mean. And over the course of the first two years of college, I began to see my life and myself differently. Until as a sophomore in college, sitting in a basement apartment of what we called Stonehenge, I realized that God's claim on my life was total and complete. I gave my heart to ministry. You know, the wonderful, marvelous grace of God. I could not have explained it to you then, but it was real and marvelous nonetheless. And since that time, I can tell you there have been moments in which the grace of God has just sort of taken quantum leaps 
in my mind and in my understanding and the impact that it's having on my life. Moments when I realized more deeply my frailty, more completely my weakness, and more profoundly my ignorance. And in those moments, the beauty of Christ just grew and grew in my mind and in my heart. And tell you all along the way, all along the way, Bert, it's been these aha moments. So that's who you are. Got it nailed. A few years later, oh, that's who you are. Now I've got it nailed. A few years later, now I see who you are. But I'm waiting for the next revelation because his grace keeps unfolding in a more and more powerful way. And I can tell you, I understand greater today what Paul wrote about when he said, when I'm weak, his grace is all sufficient for me. You don't learn that out of a textbook. It comes with years. It comes with time. Now, the gospel never changed. The gospel never changes. The gospel is the magnificent good news of what the Father has done for us through the Son, Jesus Christ, that he pours into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit, and all we do is receive it by faith. That gospel never changed. But the gospel that saved a nine-year-old grew into a gospel that claimed a 13-year-old, grew to a gospel that embraced a sophomore, and has grown every day since. And I look forward to the gospel growing and growing and growing in my life, never changing, always deep and profound, but growing in its impact on my life. I thank God for that kind of a gospel. Amen. Praise God for it. We, am I the only one this has ever happened to? Is there anybody else who could... Echo my testimony. Now, isn't it true that, that when you give your heart to Christ, the, the, the whole journey is one of growing in these, in these great moments and then in little ways day by day. And I look forward to getting to the end of it all and looking back, saying it was all true. It was true all along. Just took me that long to find out. I don't know, maybe the first thing I'll say when I get to heaven is, that's what it's all about. <laughs> and for all eternity, we'll just praise God and honor and glorify the Father for it. You know, there's something about that gospel when it has an impact on your life that gives you a definition in your life and it tells you how to live and who you are and how to respond to things. And all of life is really about this gospel growing inside of us day by day, moment by moment. Paul wrote to the Colossians about this gospel. He, he wrote to them because they were in a world that was just murky and fuzzy, foggy. Um, you know, there were just all kinds of ideas floating around in their culture, religious ideas, philosophical ideas. 
what are technically known as cockamamie ideas. You know, these, these were all just floating around, and, and like most people, they were grabbing a little of this and grabbing a little of that, and if you asked them what they believed, they'd, they'd come out with just some of the most ridiculous things as they tried to stitch together a bunch of religions, a bunch of philosophies, a bunch of what they thought was common sense, what everybody knew, and they would just wind up in this very sort of distorted and perverted sense of what it means to be a human being. And Paul's writing to these Colossian Christians, and he's saying, in this kind of murky world, you need clarity. Later on in chapter 2, verse 8, he's going to say, look, don't be led astray by philosophy, by empty deceit, by the traditions of the world. He says, don't be led astray by your culture. Don't be led astray by what everybody knows to be true but isn't. Have your eyes focused on Jesus Christ. Your eyes set upon him. And so that's why he's writing the letter to the Colossians. And we've been looking at it under the understanding of, of clarity, having a clear sense of what the truth is and who we are and who God is, having clarity in a murky world. Now, the, one of the first things we saw that was Paul said, I'm, I'm praying for you, and that reminded us that prayer is a great way to focus your attention on the reality of who God is. When you, when you, when you pray, it's, it's pretty hard to, to wander off from God. It's, it's sort of like uh, makes it more apparent to you. So prayer is a great way to give you that focus. And then last week we saw that, that those, uh, those three uh, Christian experiences of faith and of love and of hope were a good way to understand who we are and how we are uh, to respond to one another and how we operate in the kingdom of God. And so prayer and then faith, hope, and love, love and hope. And then this morning we look at the gospel as a great clarifier in our minds and how we grow and the gospel grows in us and gives us clarity in a murky world. So look at Colossians chapter 1. Well, we'll start in verse 3 again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Now, here's where we are this morning. Of this, of this experience of the grace of God in Christ Jesus, of this radical reformation of your life, around faith, love, and hope in Christ, of which, of this, you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. So that's when it came to you. It was when the, the gospel came to you. Now, the three words, the, the word of the truth, the gospel. Um, the Greek is not quite that clear. Some would translate that the true word of the gospel. Others would say the word of the true gospel. All combinations, permutations possible here, but the sense of it is very clear. The word came to them. It was true, and it was the gospel. A word was spoken to them. Somebody brought them the message of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, later on, he says, Epaphras, down there in verse uh, uh, 7 and 8, he says, you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He's made known to us your love in the Spirit. Epaphras evidently was one who, living in Colossae, 
and then perhaps traveling to Ephesus and hearing Paul and becoming a believer, came back home and things could not be the same. He couldn't just go through life as if nothing had happened. He started sharing Jesus with his friends, with his family. He started sharing Jesus with those whom he encountered, with his, with his fellow workers. He, he just started telling them about this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, when Epaphras did that, of course, he encountered the opposition. He lived in a world that says, whatever you believe is fine as long as you're sincere. He lived in a world that says, as long as what you believe, keep it to yourself. Don't try to cram your religion down anybody else's throat. Uh, this may seem familiar to you. He lived in a world that didn't want to hear it. But he kept telling them about Jesus. And one by one, one would respond, and then another would respond, and then another, until there was a church, a collection, the body of Christ there in Colossae. And so they heard the gospel. Do you remember the person who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with you? It might be just that one person. You know who it was. For me, it's a collection of people. It's faithful Sunday school teachers. It's preachers. It's my parents. It's just a collection of people who shared with me Christ day by day, by example, by word, by actions. And that led me to that moment when I just came forward. I said, you know, I want to be a believer. I I gave my heart to Jesus. I want to be baptized. You know, little kids do that. They'll, they'll come forward, and you know, in the morning they come forward, and, and they're shy. They're always shy, a little hesitant. You don't know what that big guy's going to do to you. <laughs> you know, last kid who went up there, he hit him. I know he did. I didn't see it, but I've heard about it. It must have happened. <laughs> they come up and they say, I asked Jesus into my heart. So the first thing I say is, well, can you explain the Trinity to me? <laughs> What is the presuppositional prolegomena of your systematic theology? And they usually, (laughs) no, they don't. (laughs) They come forward and they give everything they know about themselves to everything they know about Jesus. That's all you can do. That's all you can do. I praise God that he honors the faith of a a child. I thank God that, that he brings by the power of his spirit little ones to himself at an early age and saves them the frustration and the heartache of departing from the way and just living in a far country. I thank God for that kind of grace. But they come forward, you know, and they accept Christ. Do you remember the person who led you to Jesus? Remember the person who shared Christ with you? Because God in his grace put people in your life to bring you to Christ. It was a word. It was a word that came to us. And and Paul said, and, and it was a true word, the word of the truth. Now, at some point, it became apparent to us, this word is true. Now, at one moment, it's like, no, nah, that's not true. The next moment, yeah, this is really true. Now, why, why do people change their minds like that? I once asked a psychologist, I said, why do people change their mind? I wanted to know. The best answer he could give me, he said, people change their minds because of fear. Let me tell you why people change their minds. They see the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ and they fall head over heels in love with it. They see how attractive he is and how wonderful the grace of God is and they just want more of that. The Holy Spirit plants it within their heart to love him and to want him. That's what happens. You know, at one moment it didn't make any sense to you, you rejected it. The next moment it's the most wonderful truth in the world and you can't get enough of it. That's grace of God. That's the Holy Spirit working in your heart, softening you opening you, making you pliable, malleable in the hands of the Spirit, that he can shape you and form you into the kind of believer you need to be. 
So at some point, it, it, it became apparent it was the truth. The word came to you and said, yes, that's true. And usually right along with that then is, and yes, it's for me. Yes, I want this gospel. He says the word, the truth, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, gospel is an interesting word. Gospel in classical Greek meant good news. Okay? Now, in the intertestamental period, the Greek language used the word gospel to mean good news. By the time you're in the New Testament era, the word euangelion, gospel, means good news. Today, the word gospel means good news. Are you getting the point here? I mean, it's a, it's a little more um, uh, ornate than that in the philology of the word, but it basically means this is good news. This is an announcement you've been waiting to hear. This is a, a, a proclamation that will radically transform who you are and how you live. It is good news for us. Here's that gospel. You know, we spent time in, in, in Galatians talking about the authentic gospel. The uh, readers in Galatia, those Christians have been told, well, the gospel is all about what God did in Christ and what you do in the law. That's what they've been told. Some people still think that. They think the good news is Jesus died for my sins so that now I can work for my salvation. Here's the gospel, grace alone. Here's the authentic gospel. God does it all, start to finish. We are simply responding by faith to the working of God's grace. That's the authentic gospel. The gospel is a story. Let me give you the story of the gospel in four sentences. Some of you know this already. You'll like this. The gospel in four sentences. God sent his son. God sent Jesus Christ. We didn't, we didn't go get him. We didn't appoint a committee. We didn't do studies and hold congressional hearings to find out what the problem is, how we could work it to the advantage of our district, and, and come up with some solution that the Supreme Court could misinterpret. I'm, I'm getting off track now. God sent his son. Jesus Christ, to be the Savior, to die for our sins, to give up his life so that we might live. All those things. First sentence, God sent his son. Second sentence, you killed him. This is what Peter said on the day of Pentecost when he was preaching in Jerusalem. Remember that? He, um, the crowd gathered around and they said, you guys must be drunk. Look at the way you're worshiping and singing and all that. Peter says, no, no, you don't understand this. This is the fulfillment of prophecy. The Holy Spirit's being poured out upon us. And let me tell you what it's all about. First thing it's about, God sent Jesus. And then the second thing Peter says is, you killed him. You killed him. Now, he didn't say that to Pilate. Didn't say it to the Romans. They weren't there. He didn't say it to the religious leaders. They weren't there. He said it to the common, ordinary people. He said, you killed him. Our sins put Jesus to death on the cross. He died the death that we deserve. Because we've rebelled against God, because we've sinned against God, because we have shut God out of our lives, refused to acknowledge him as sovereign over all the universe, because of our sinful rebellion and rejection of God, our sin demanded the price of death, and that price was paid by Jesus Christ. That's what we mean. You killed him. Your sins did it. I love the next one. God sent him, you killed him. God raised him. God raised him. 
And you wouldn't have guessed that in a million guesses. You wouldn't have come up with that. God raised him from the dead, conquered the grave, conquered sin, conquered the power and the fear and the paralysis of death. God raised him from the grave and by the resurrection declared Jesus Christ with power to be the Son of God, to be the Messiah, to be the Savior. And so God raised him from the dead. Three sentences so far. God sent him, you killed him. God raised him. Fourth sentence, you repent. That means just you turn from the way you're going, you turn to the way God wants you. You turn away from your sin, you're walking in the self-will and the self-direction of your life, and you turn to God and you accept Christ and you walk in the will of the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. You repent from your sin. That's the gospel, four sentences. God sent him, you killed him. God raised him, you repent. That's the gospel. Now, Paul says... I see that you learned everything you know about being a Christian because you heard the word of the truth of the gospel. See, the gospel then becomes this clarifying lens to understand how we are to live and who we are to be because of Jesus Christ, right? Any questions on this so far? What would I have done if somebody had asked a question right there? I would have answered it. Not well, but where are we? Of this you have heard, last half of five. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you, we talked about that, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is growing and the gospel is is bearing fruit. First of all, the gospel is growing numerically. I mean, back in the days of the New Testament, as Paul wrote to them, uh, in the city of Colossae, there used to be no Christians at all. Now there were uh, a, a number of Christians. There was at least one church gathering there to, to worship. So numerically, it was growing. At the day of Pentecost, you start out with 120 possible believers in the upper room. And they go out, and then thousands are saved and brought into the body of Christ on that day. And then the word goes out and more and more churches and believers are being added and the numbers are increasing. God is adding to the number of the church those who are being saved. Until this faith that begins in some backwater country of the empire a few centuries later has taken over the empire. And the empire has been transformed. No longer the glory and the blood sports and the arena and the Colosseum. No longer the, the, the disdain for human life and abandoning the infants and an abortion and murder. No longer the immorality and the casual acceptance of whatever feels good, do it kind of morality. But an empire now saturated with Christ and growing in numbers. The gospel has grown ever since. Christian faith now is the largest uh, religion by, by population, by adherence, according to uh, the statistics we have at, at, at present. That really doesn't prove a thing. Look, if there was only one person who believed the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would still be absolutely true and the only truth. But this gospel has increased and it has borne fruit. The first fruit it, it bears is in the heart of the believer. 
you know, you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that, that fruit immediately, you know, begins working in your life, the gospel bringing about the fruit of righteousness and, the, and, the, and the, what we talked about them in, 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 uh, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. You remember the nine fruit of the Spirit. Debbie can name all nine of them. Go ahead. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Okay. But you remember in chapter 5, it says, look, you belong to Christ. You don't live in the flesh anymore. You don't live like an ordinary person. You don't just walk around and, and the sexual uh, desires and the, and the lusts of the flesh and, the, and, and, and uh, the, the, the matters of the flesh just take over your, your body. No, now you're living in the Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit is at work in you, now the gospel bears the fruit of the Spirit in your life. In other words, we are saved by the grace of God, but then the grace of God keeps working and keeps bubbling forth in us. You know, and one, what, one of the exciting things about being a believer in Jesus Christ is, is as, you, as you go through life, these fruit just keep coming up and you say, thank you, Father. You know, patience isn't all there, but it's more there than it used to be. And the gentleness is coming along and the, and the faithfulness is coming along. And you just thank God every day for the evidence of the gospel in your life because the fruit are coming up in your life. And so there's a fruit of the gospel that comes into the life of the believer. And you look for that. You strive for that, and you thank God, and you praise God for that. Since the gospel is growing, but it's also bearing fruit. You know, the gospel just plain bears fruit just because it's the gospel. Um, studies done by, these people are called missiologists. They study missions, or missionologists, okay, missiologists. And the studies they've done have shown this. In developing countries, where there was a Christian witness proclaiming a gospel of conversion, a gospel of salvation, not where a state church went in and just established state churches, but where missionaries went in and started telling people, you're important to the Father. Starting telling individuals, no, you're not a mass of a collection. You're, you're important to the Father one by one. He calls you by name. In those countries, basically a Protestant witness, in those countries that had that kind of missionary endeavor, those countries have a higher level of education. They have more printing presses and newspapers. They have more books. They have more libraries. And they are more prosperous. And they are more democratic. That's, that's just a fact of sociology. The gospel bears fruit just because it's the gospel. But Paul says, you heard about all this in the word of truth, in the gospel, and this same gospel is increasing and it's growing and it's bearing fruit. That's what it's about. You know, before he gets to talk about all the, the things that need to really adhere to you, he says, this, this is already going on in your life. That's how you're going to have clarity in a very murky world when you're part of a gospel that's growing and bearing fruit in your life. Now, let me illustrate how, how that might be important now, from uh, the Gospel of Matthew, this Gospel of Matthew chapter 13, just real quick. Matthew 13, 3, Jesus told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, that's what sowers do, by the way, and as he sowed some seeds... I'm, I'm sorry, there's a little thing in the back of my mind that's saying, that's great alliteration. A sower went forth out to sow, and as he sowed some seeds, you like that? 
Aren't there any English majors in here at all? Okay. Anyway. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky soil where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty-fold. If you've got ears, listen to this. Now, in verse 18... It's one of the few times Jesus explains a parable. One of the few times. But he explains this one. He says, hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, does not understand it, the evil one comes, snatches away what has been sown in his heart. That is what was sown along the path. Satan will take away the, the, the beauty of the gospel and the impact of the gospel on a human life. If you ignore it, if you neglect it, Satan will do everything he can to remove it from your, your environment. Try to get you far away from it because he knows that's what's going to connect you up with the Father. Right. So Satan can take that away. Second. And as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word... Immediately, he falls away. See, persecution can take you away from the fruit of the gospel. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the word. By the way, the next phrase, man, he was writing this in America. He was writing this in the good old U.S. of A., home of the American dream, home of where everybody can come and prosper in a home of where everyone who just try hard, work hard, you can get ahead, own a house or at least a mortgage, and uh, you know, and you, you can be great stuff. Here's here's what Jesus said about that. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, and the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of thinking stuff defines who you are. The big lie that you've got to have a lot of money in order to be happy. The deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. Let me tell you that understanding. That understanding is a matter of the head, of course, but it's a matter of the heart. To understand the word of the gospel it's to have that passion awakened within you that this indeed is the Savior. This indeed is the Messiah. This indeed, Son of God. This indeed, the one who is worthy of all praise and adoration. This is the one who is only worthy, only one worthy in my life. And when you understand the gospel that way, then you start to bear fruit. And you bear it a hundredfold or sixty or thirtyfold as the Spirit directs. But the fruit is produced by the gospel when you fall in love with Jesus Christ. Okay. Now we need clarity. We need clarity. But let, let, let me finish off in, in uh, Colossians. Back to Colossians 1. Uh, it's bearing fruit and increasing them in the middle of verse 6. It also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, understood the grace of God in truth, understood the grace of God in truth. 
just as you learned it from Epaphras, our fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ, and on your behalf, he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. So when this gospel is growing and bearing fruit in your life, it gives you clarity. It strips away all the falderal, Greek word for that, falderalis, yes, I can. But it, it strips away all the falderal in the world around us and all this, this, this silliness that people say. And when your eyes are focused on Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ is growing in your life and it's producing fruit in your life and you're experiencing day by day a little bit more of the wonder of the grace of God, that'll give you clarity in life. Clarity in the world. So this morning I would just ask you, is, is the gospel bearing fruit? Is it growing in your life? Day by day, do you glory in coming before the Father to give Him honor and praise just to worship Him? Day by day, is the Son more important to you that you want to be like Him? You want to make Him known and manifest in word and deed? Are you yielding to the Spirit a little bit more every day that the Holy Spirit of God would be transforming your life and bringing about the fruit of the Spirit. Because that's what will give us clarity. Again, folks, rough times are coming. The rough times are coming. It'll take just a little while, but they'll get here. And in those moments, we had better be clear on who we are in Christ Jesus. And when the gospel's planted in your life and is bearing fruit, you'll have clarity in a murky world. Let's bow together in prayer. And gracious Father, how thankful I am that we don't have to figure you out. You reveal yourself to us. How thankful we are, Father, that we don't have to ascend into heaven to bring you down to us, but you have come down to us in Christ Jesus. Father, how thankful we are that it's all grace. And so I pray that, that this morning your Holy Spirit would be poured out upon us, that hearts would be turned to Christ, that the brother and sister who struggles today would have the courage of faith just to believe, to follow, to, to obey all that you had set before us, that you would get the glory, Father, and that we would have a clear vision of Christ, our lives belonging to him. I ask it in Jesus' name.